Take your Bibles today and turn with me, if you will, to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel and chapter 47. Pastor, you left your Bible here on the pulpit, and I know that you'll want to use that. Ezekiel chapter 47. I'm speaking this morning on this subject, Rivers of Revival. Brother Fred always taught me that a preacher ought to preach what's hot on his heart. For several years now, I have had a burden for real revival. You ask the average pew warmer in a church what they think of when you mention the word revival. They think of a special series of protracted services that we have once or twice a year where you bring in a special type of preacher and you bring, have special music and a lot of people get saved. All of that is fine and wonderful. I'm convinced that is a part of revival, but that is not real revival. Revival is a work of God among his people. It is when God steps out of heaven and steps in the midst of what's going on down here, and God moves in such a way that when the dust settles and the smoke clears, the only way you can describe it or explain it is to say, God did that. God showed up. God touched down. God moved in might and in power within our midst. I've been in the ministry 51 years this year. Only eight times in 51 years have I seen real revival come. One of those, Brother Ed, was when you and I were in Quincy, Florida a long time ago. You may remember that. But once you've ever tasted of real revival, you'll never be satisfied with anything less. Your heart will yearn and long to go back there again and for God to do it again. In an even greater way. If there's ever been a time that the church and the United States of America needed revival, it is today. Now start reading with me, if you will, please, in Ezekiel 47 and verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with a line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits. That's 500 yards. And he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through, and the water came up to my waist. Again, he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep. Water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time that we came to see the bankruptcy of human imagination. We are finally coming to the realization that New Age philosophy, secular humanism, and liberalism are not giving us the answers for which we so desperately seek. I believe that God is America's only answer. Now, I know you expect me to say that. I know that sounds like a truism. But let me tell you why I believe that with all of my heart. I believe God's the only one big enough for a freeborn American to bow down to. I believe God's the only one wise enough to give us the wisdom 
that we need. I believe God's the only one strong enough to deliver us from our enemies. And by the way, even though we have many enemies on the outside and from without, we have more enemies from within than we do even on the outside. I do not believe that America is gone. But I do believe that she is at the crossroads and she is definitely up for grab. We need to pray for America. We need to pray for the people in Washington, D.C. Someone said if the devil went crazy, he would want it to be in Washington, D.C. where nobody would know the difference. (laughs) Or he'd run for president of the United States. Either way, listen to me carefully. I am convinced we have many people in prominent positions trying to give us all the answers, who obviously have never really found out the question. The question that looms large, that still remains, is this. What will you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? We need to pray for Montgomery. We need to pray for Mobile. We need to pray for Luke 4.18. We need to pray for people specifically. We need to pray that God would send an old-fashioned, heaven-sent, Holy Ghost anointed, fire from heaven, God breathe, devil defying, Christ honoring, mountain moving, earth shaking revival before it's too late. I am convinced that God is giving America and the church one more opportunity to repent before he comes. God is giving us every opportunity in the world to go to our knees And to depend upon him, realizing that no man, regardless of how brilliantly intelligent they seem to be, no man is going to solve all of our problems. Now take your Bible and look with me again in Ezekiel 47. What are these waters about which the Bible is speaking? I believe here we have an Old Testament prophecy, an Old Testament illustration of the coming of the Holy Spirit who wants to be set forth in our lives. And we are to become a river of refreshment, a spring in a desert. We are to have coming from us day by day and moment by moment rivers of revival. But I'm afraid that there are many Christians who are only springs, or certainly not springs, they're only sponges. They're just soaking up and never giving out anything unless they get squeezed. And when they get squeezed, anything and everything but Jesus comes out. I venture to say in a crowd this large, there's at least one, probably many people, that sometime during the course of the last 24 to 36 hours, you've been squeezed by someone or something in one way or another. When you were squeezed, what was manifested? Was it the works of the flesh or was it the fruit of the Spirit? Suppose that you were to take a lemon in your hand and squeeze that. What would come out? Well, naturally, you'd say, Brother Lynn, you ought to be able to figure that out. You're an educated man. Sour lemon juice. Well, hypothetically, but technically, what would come out was what is ever on the inside. And I'm convinced that when we get squeezed, it doesn't change us. It just reveals what we really are. So when you and I are squeezed, does the devil manifest himself? Does the flesh manifest itself? Or, do, or does the fruit of the Spirit become manifest in our lives. I was preaching on this one time years ago when I was a pastor. And I was preaching on what do you do when you get squeezed? 
and I told them the things that I'm telling you now. Well, I've since learned that either 24 hours just prior to whatever I preach or 24 hours after, it's going to become very pertinent and relevant in my own life in a personal way. And the next day, I was having a discussion, a domestic discussion with my son, Blake. Now, Blake was easygoing, laid back. He was born when we lived here in Mobile. It seems like he was always really wanting to please his mother and me. Now, his two sisters, entirely different ball game, entirely different approach to life. Strong-willed, hard-headed, stubborn, difficult to communicate with, just like their mama, bless God. I'm telling you, it, it could get interesting at times. But Blake had done something that displeased me. I don't even remember what it was now. And I was having to have one of those few talks that I had to have with Blake. And obviously, I was getting a little more exercise the longer we discussed it. Obviously, my voice was beginning to rise. And just the day before, I had preached on what do you do when you get squeezed. Blake just stood there looking at me. And when I finished, I said, now, son, do you have anything to say? He said, I sure do, Dad. He said, it looks like you're getting squeezed, aren't you? I hate for people to turn my preaching around on me. I really do. But it is the absolute truth. What do you do when you get squeezed? And listen. If you seek to walk with God, friend, you're going to get squeezed in one way or another, at one time or another, by someone. Are you a spring or a sponge? Are you one who is receiving, but also trusting the Lord to lead you to be giving? Are you one who is simply receiving and soaking up and becoming so swelled up within yourself with spiritual pride that you do not give out? There are to be rivers of revival. They are to be flowing. They are to be growing. And they are to be going. Let's look at each one of those individually. Go with me now to verse 1. And let's talk for a few moments about the flowing of the river. I believe that's what we read about in verse 1. The house he's speaking about here is the temple. The Old Testament house of three rooms. The outer court where the people first entered. The inner court where they worshipped. And then the Holy of Holies. Separated from the people and the Lord by a large veil. A large curtain. The people could not go behind that veil. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. He could only go there one time a year to offer prayers on behalf of the people and sacrifices. And, and he would stay there for three to six hours at a time. And because no one else could go there, they would tie a rope around his ankle. So if he got sick, dropped dead, had a heart attack or whatever, they could pull him out. After three to six hours of offering prayers for the people, he would come out, and if God had accepted his prayers, then he would shout to the crowd, it is finished. This is why when Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished, every Orthodox Jew under the sound of his voice understood what he was saying. He was saying that his sacrifice to atone for all of the sins of the world was the only sacrifice accepted by the Father over in the glory. There was nothing to be added to it, nothing to be taken away from it, nothing that anyone could say or do to alter it or to change it in any way because it is the only sacrifice accepted by the Father to take care of our sin problem Glory be to God, hallelujah, for what he did. I want you to remember that that temple is just a picture of you and me. Because you and I are a house of three rooms. We are body, soul, and spirit. Our bodies are these clay shells in which we live. We see and experience each other's body. Our soul is the very center of our being. It's our mind, our will, our emotions. We experience each other's soul. But our spirit... 
That's the deepest innermost part of you and the deepest innermost part of me. That's that part of you that I can't see today. And that's that part of me that you can't see. And when we get saved, it is the Holy Spirit who comes to live within our spirit and bears witness with us that we are a child of God. So in us, the holy of holies, the intersection where God dwells is the deepest innermost part of us, our spirit. You see, in the Old Testament, God had a temple for his people. In the New Testament, God has a people for his temple. That is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, speaking to a divided carnal church at Corinth, what? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God, which is in you, and you are not your own, but you are bought with a price? Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are the Lord's. So as these waters issued out of the Old Testament temple, it pictures something issuing out of you and me. Now what does it picture? Listen to me carefully. I am convinced that for every significant Old Testament passage of Scripture, there is a corresponding and a correlating New Testament passage of Scripture. The greatest commentary on the Bible is the Bible. The greatest way to prove Scripture is with Scripture. So I want you to hold your place in Ezekiel 47, and I want you to turn to your right and let me show you what I am convinced is the New Testament counterpart of Ezekiel 47. Go with me to the Gospel of John. John's Gospel and chapter 7. And when we get there, I want you to look with me at verses 37 through 39. John 7, 37 through 39. This is Jesus giving us the promise of the Holy Spirit. Years ago, Brother Fred put into our hands a book by Miss Ruth Paxson called Rivers of living water. It was based on this passage of Scripture. Look at it. On the last day, that great day of the feast, now I'm going to come back in just a moment and explain that to you. Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, he's quoting Deuteronomy now, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given. That is, he had not yet come to indwell believers. That happens on the day of Pentecost, as recorded in Acts chapter 2. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Go back to verse 37, those first two phrases. On the last day, that great day of the feast. The Jews had a feast called the Feast of the Tabernacle. Historians say you've never seen rejoicing like the rejoicing at the Feast of the Tabernacle. The people would come to Jerusalem. They had a lot of ceremonies. They would build booths. They camped. They worshipped. They feasted. They danced. They sang just to praise the Lord for His goodness and His graciousness to them. Every day they would go down to the Pool of Siloam. And the high priest would take a large golden pitcher. He would fill it with water. And then with the blowing of trumpets, the clanging of the cymbals, the dancing and jubilation of the people, the priests would carry that pitcher full of water. They would pour it out on the altar and they would sing with joy. Shall you draw out of the waters, out of the well of salvation. On the last day of that great feast, they would march around the altar seven times. You remember the number seven stands for perfection. Then they would pour out all the water on the altar. It was the climax 
of all climaxes. It was joy, jubilation, and ecstasy. Just when the people were ready to give a jubilant shout, just when there was a dramatic pause, the Bible says the Lord Jesus stood to his feet and cried out at the top of his lungs. Now you remember the Bible had said he shall not strive or cry. His voice shall not be heard in the streets. In other words, this was not the common, ordinary activity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says Jesus went about meek and lowly. But at this time, he is so filled with enthusiasm that he stood and literally shouted. You talk about a dramatic moment. What does this Old Testament picture of water flowing out from the temple picture? It pictures the Holy Spirit flowing out of you and me. You know, you and I are supposed to be a river everywhere we go. We're supposed to have an artesian well flowing up and overflowing from within us day by day. I hear people talk about going to a church or a conference or something special in order to get their cup filled. Friend, you don't have to go to anything special to get your cup filled. If you've got a well within you, a river flowing out of your innermost being, a river of living water. You know, if you're old enough, you remember we used to have out by our our back doors these old-fashioned pitcher pumps. And you'd keep a pail or a jar there. And you had to keep priming that pump or it would go dry. I've discovered in 51 years there are a lot of people in the church that are like that. If you want them to come, you want them to give, you want them to serve, you want them to teach, you want them to get involved, man, you, you have to stroke them under the chin, stroke their hair, brag on them. Maybe they'll come, maybe they'll give, maybe they'll serve. Whatever you do, you almost feel like you have to manipulate them. You keep priming their pumps, and as long as you keep priming their pump, they'll give you a little water. But after a while, if you have to leave this one alone, to go over here and prime this one's pump, this one stops coming, stops giving, stops serving, stops teaching, stops being involved with what God's doing. I call them pitcher-pump Christians. I had the distinct honor and privilege of pastoring some pitcher-pump Christians. But listen to me, thank God there are also some artesian well Christians. An artesian well goes down so deep that it hits an underground river, a river of living water. You don't have to keep priming it, you don't have to keep pumping it, it just overflows. A.J. Gordon said he went to the World's Fair one time and off in the distance, he saw an extremely large man wearing a Japanese kimono and he was pumping a well and the water was just really flowing. But he said the closer he got to it, he noticed it was not a real man at all, but it was a wooden man with a hitch in his arm. And he wasn't pumping the well, but the well was pumping him. Sometimes we'll look at somebody and we'll say, boy, they sure are doing a lot for the Lord. No, they may not be doing a lot for the Lord, but the Lord may be doing a lot in them, with them, through them, by them, and for them, all for his glory. Now go back to Ezekiel 47 again, and look with me in verse 1. And notice that this river, this water, it flows past the altar. And the Bible says there in verse 1, it flows toward the east, that is, toward the sun. And friend, if you're going to be filled with God's Holy Spirit, you're going to have to keep your face pointed toward the Son of Righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the Bible says will arise with healing in His wings. And by the way, the glory went out that eastern gate once, but praise God, one day real soon, that glory is going to come back through that eastern gate when Jesus literally, visibly, imminently, gloriously comes back. 
the second time. I want you to notice in verse 1 it flows past the altar. The altar there represents the cross. The reason some of us don't have a river of living water is we're not willing to let our river flow past the altar. That is, we're not willing to die to self. We're not willing to be so transparent with God. We'll confess our sins. Literally dethrone self. Remove self from the throne of our heart. Die to self. Assign our old wicked big eye to a position of death. Enthrone Jesus as Lord. And ask God in Jesus' name to fill us with the Holy Spirit. Do you know what the cross is? It's just a big eye crossed out. And no one can be filled with self. And be filled with Jesus at the same time. One will always replace the other. There is the flowing of the river. But now go with me to verses 2 through 6. And I want you to read about the growing of the river. You'll notice beginning in verse 2 we see a man who has a measuring line in his hand. And he measures in 500 yard increments. He begins at the door of the temple and goes out 500 yards. The water is ankle deep. He goes 500 more yards and the water is knee deep. He goes 500 more yards and the water is waist deep. He goes 500 more yards and it's a river so deep that you could not get across it without swimming. Do you know what that's a picture of, dear friend? That's a picture of you and me going on deeper with the Lord. I'm afraid too many of our people have been satisfied to wade around in ankle deep water when we need to get into that river. Have you ever seen a person swimming? You can observe them from any position, and all you'll see is their head. Do you know who our head is? It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that the world is to see no one or nothing except the Lord Jesus Christ in your life and in my life. That's what the Lord's saying to us here. He wants us to be so immersed in His plan. So filled with his love, so committed to his cause, that you and I are going to be buried in the river of revival, and only Jesus, our head, is going to be seen. If you profess to be saved, you should have as your greatest desire to grow, to mature, to develop spiritually in the Lord Jesus. If you're not, why aren't you? We live in a day and time in which people can do practically anything they really want to do. It just all depends on what we really desire to do. I've heard people get down and beg God, God, we just need more of you. No, my friend, when you got saved, you got as much of Jesus and the Holy Spirit as you're ever going to get. The question is, how much of you and me do Jesus and the Holy Spirit get every day? When you got saved, you got everything you need to live the Christian life. The question is, are you and I going to try to do it in the power and energy of the flesh? Are we going to trust the one who saved us to settle down in our hearts, make himself at home, be himself, and live his life through us? Because you see, my friend, this river is ever-widening, ever-growing, ever-deepening. And chances are, if you don't love Jesus Christ more today than you used to love Him, then you love Him less. If there's ever been a time that you and I were closer to Him than we are right now, and I want to tell you, you and I are in a backslidden condition, and we need revival. We need a fresh touch from God. You see, when the rivers of revival flow, Your only desire will be to glorify, honor, magnify, and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. There is the flowing of the river. There is the growing of the river. Now go with me to verse 8 
And let's observe the going of the river. Down in verse 8, this is what he says. Then he said to me, the water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley, and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, twice he refers to the sea. I'll tell you what that means in just a moment. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. Now here's what he's saying. It goes down into the barren places. It goes down into the parched places. It goes down into the dark places. I've seen and been in that Judean desert. You talk about a rocky, barren place. And yet God says this is where the water is to flow. When those places out in that desert get water, it's amazing. You look at that old rocky, barren soil, and then they put water on it. And friend, the plants that grow out of it are as green as poison. They grow and sprout everywhere that there is water. You and I are living in communities, counties, cities, states that are spiritual deserts, places that are spiritually barren, with a church on every corner. I counted the number of churches I passed getting to Luke 4.18 this morning. I was amazed. The modern-day Christian church hops, jumping from one church to another. Most of them are dead. They're not really preaching the word or preaching the gospel. They're trying to copy the world and do what the world told them they had to do. Bring in the world's music because they say that you have to do that in order to be relevant, to relate to people, and in order to reach people. I have a good Greek and Hebrew word for that. Bull. You do not have to copy the world to reach the world. They're looking to you and me for something different. They're looking to you and me for something that will stir their heart, stir their soul, that will speak to them deep from within. I tell you, where the rivers of revival start to flow, there's going to be life. Look down in verse 8. Notice it flows into the depressed areas. I called your attention to the fact that twice he refers to the sea there. About what sea is he speaking? Well, if you go to the temple site in Jerusalem and look out the window in this same direction, you're looking toward the Dead Sea. I mean the barren and the death. The Dead Sea is the lowest spot on the face of the earth. It is 1,300 feet below sea level. And where this river flows, there is life. It's called the Dead Sea because it takes in, but it never flows out. The Sea of Galilee takes in, but the Sea of Galilee also gives out. Now what happens where this river goes? Look at verse 7. If you will, stay with me now. This gets exciting. When I returned there along the bank of the river, were very many trees on one side and on the other. Isn't that amazing? It was completely barren. God sent the river, symbolizing the Holy Spirit, and the trees began to grow. You see, where the river goes, the trees grow. You know how the Bible describes a righteous man? He shall be like a tree planted. By the rivers of water. Go down to verse 12. Along the bank of the river on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Not only will trees grow, but fruit will grow. The Bible says in Galatians 5, and 23, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Against such... There is no law. Now, friend, how much of that fruit is growing where my river runs and where your river runs? How many lives is God using you and to make, me to make like the trees that are planted by the rivers? 
People are hungry for this fruit. They don't care a whole lot about our preaching. They don't care a whole lot about our fine church buildings. They don't care a whole lot about our financial record. But all around us, people are going to wake up and watch us when they see the fruit of the Spirit, when they see love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. When they're hurting, they're scarred, they're broken, they're wounded. That is exactly what they're looking for. And that can only be found in Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit bearing His fruit through us. They'll say, these folks are real. They have something that's real. I want it and I need it. Look again with me at the Bible. Not only will trees grow, not only will fruit grow, but health will grow. Read the rest of verse 12 with me. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food. And their leaves for medicine. The healing waters of God will flow. And sick spiritual souls will grow. Not only will trees grow. Not only will fruit grow. Not only will health grow. Fish will grow. Look at verses 9 and 10. And it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go will live. There will be a very great multitude of the fish because these waters go there. For they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by from En Gedi to En Eglium. There will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea. That means the Mediterranean. Exceedingly many Oh, I go so many places. And the reason some pastors don't catch fish when they preach is they cast their nets into polluted pools. There's so much sin in the camp today. And yet the Bible says we're to be fishers of men. And we can't be fishers of men if we've got sin in our own life and sin in the camp. Sometimes God's people are so stagnant, so dead, so decayed that the fish don't really care to come. But brother, when the rivers of revival start to flow, that's where the fish start to grow. And then you've got a wonderful fish pond and we'll be fishers of men and we'll see fish being caught when they come into personal contact with the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see souls being saved because the river of revival is flowing. And the test of whether or not God's really on a church, really blessing and working within a church is, do lost people have the freedom to get saved and are lost people being saved? Now, who wouldn't like to have a river like that flowing out of them? But the average person that hears me preach, this is what they say. Well, Brother Lynn, I don't have a lot of money. I don't have a lot of education. I don't have a lot of prestige. I don't have a lot of personality. Friend, God doesn't care about all that. All God wants to know is that you and I have a river inside of us. Did you know that I can fill up that baptistry with a thimble as long as that thimble keeps overflowing? Did you know that? You said, preacher, it would take you an awful long time. I didn't say that. I just said I can fill up that baptistry with a thimble as long as that thimble just keeps overflowing. Don't you want your life to overflow? Don't you want your church to overflow? I tell you, a church ought to be a Mississippi River of God's love. I tell you, when people ride down that road out there, they ought to fall under conviction because they so sense and are so aware of the power, the presence, the glory, and the anointing of God. When people get out of the car, on the campus, even before they set foot inside of the building, they ought to be so aware that God's here, that God's touched down, that God's shown up. But they come in to bring their needs and their wounds and their hurts. They come in to bring their lives. And it will happen if the rivers of revival are beginning to flow. Now, if you're here today and you don't profess to be a Christian, 
I want to tell you that God loves you. Christ died for you. God has a will, purpose, and plan for your life. And if you'd been the only person this side of heaven that needed for him to do what he did, Jesus would have done it just for you. You're important to God. You matter to God. But I want you to listen to this. We're told now that there are over 8 billion people in the world at this very moment. I could line those 8 billion people up, single file, heel to toe. They would go around the earth two times. They would circle the moon and come back, go around the earth four more times. I could take a golden cup, hand it to the first one in line, and say, I want you to put all of your human goodness in that one cup. Pass it to the next person. Pass it to all over the 8 billion people. That are in line. When it finally reached the last one. There would not be enough human goodness. In that golden cup. To save one little child. From their sins. Because the Bible says our righteousness. Is as filthy rags. And friend if you think you can go to heaven. Without being saved and born again. You're profoundly ignorant of two things. Number one how holy God is. And number two how sinful. You and I are. Imagine you were to stand before God today, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer him? Would you say, well, Lord, I've been a loyal church member, or Lord, I've done a lot of good things in my life. Lord, I've treated people well. I hadn't stolen anything. I hadn't killed anybody. I hadn't committed adultery. On and on and on you'd go trying to impress him with all you've done. All of those things, fine, good, and well within themselves, more than likely most people who are really saved and walk with the Lord, they'll do those things or not do those things. But none of those things in and of themselves are sufficient to get you into heaven. Because no matter how good you are, you'll never be good enough. Because you're not perfect. And God's standard is perfection. Even if you'd committed only one sin in your life, it'd be enough to keep you from being saved. Because James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. There is only one way, and that is through Jesus Christ. God's Son was perfect without sin, and yet because He loved us, He made it possible for us, even though we're sinners, to be saved. On the cross, He took our place, became our substitute, and as the song said we sang earlier, He died the death that we really deserved to die. He took our punishment upon himself. He took all of our sins upon himself. But he also gave us his righteousness. Because Romans 3.22 says, This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So my friend, what you need to do in just a moment is trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Realize he's done all that is necessary for your salvation to be possible. You can't work for it. You can't pay for it. You can't earn it. You don't even deserve it. None of us do. But thank God he still did it for every one of us. And you just receive his gift by faith. And know that your salvation and your life depends upon him. You see, so much of contemporary preaching today, it's relational. Talking about relationships. Motivational, just motivate people to do something. Inspirational or celebrational. Nothing wrong with any of that. I believe all that's a part of the kingdom. But I make no apologies for telling you, I'm still an old-fashioned, transformational preacher. I believe whosoever will may come. 
I don't care who you are, where you've been, what you've done, what you haven't done. I don't care how bad you think you are. God loves you. Christ died for you. He's ready for you if you're willing to come to him and give your life to him. Had an unusual experience a few years ago. I did something I seldom do. Usually when I go to churches for more than a day, I stay Sunday morning through Wednesday night. And I had a church in the Atlanta area to ask me if I would just come and preach on Sunday morning. So I agreed to do that. And the church in Gastonia, North Carolina, where I was to go, I would be there Sunday night through Wednesday night. They called and said, since you can't be here Sunday morning, would you stay an extra night? I said, sure. I'd be honored to do that. So I preached on Sunday morning, went to lunch with my pastor and and my family and and his uh, family. And uh, I had to catch a 3.30 flight out of Atlanta to Charlotte, North Carolina. Being a typical Baptist preacher because I learned from one of the best how to live life on the cutting edge and run 15 minutes behind schedule. I showed up just in time to get my luggage checked on the curb at Atlanta and get to the flight. Wouldn't you know, it was on Concourse C, and it was all the way at the end of the concourse when I came up the escalator. I tell you, I, I was, had an unusual turning inside of me. I said, I'm going to miss this flight. So I literally ran to the airport to get down to gate C31. When I got there and I walked up to the gate, it was obvious that something unusual was going on. And the ticket agent for Delta said, sir, I, I regret to inform you, but the 330 flight to Charlotte has been canceled. I said, that's all right. I said, just get me on the next flight. I need to get to Charlotte no, as soon as I can. He looked. He said, well, sir, I'm sorry, but Delta doesn't have another flight going to Charlotte until 8 o'clock tonight. Well, I'm human just like you. And the devil tried to put a spirit of fear on me. Panic came. I began to get a little sick to my stomach. I said, no, sir, you don't understand. I said, I'm a Baptist preacher, and I have to be in Gastonia, North Carolina, to preach tonight at 7 o'clock. You've got to do whatever you can to get me to Charlotte. He said, well, preacher, I'm a Christian. He said, I'll certainly pray for you, and God bless you, but you're not going with Delta until 8 o'clock tonight. <laughs> now, I'm human just like you. My first thought was, I'm going to give this old boy a piece of my mind. I can't really afford to do without. I'm going to ask to see his boss. I'm going to get him straight and get his boss straight and get Delta straight. But the Holy Spirit just spoke to me and said, now, wait a minute, son. You've been preaching on eight, Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to those who are the called according to his purpose. I might just have a little something else in mind here. Just tell the man to give you the ticket to 8 o'clock and back up and be quiet and watch what I do. So I said, go ahead and put me on that 8 o'clock flight. I even had him check some other airlines. There wasn't another flight on another airline going out. I'm beginning to wonder to myself, what's going on? God was trying to tell me, but I'm thick-headed and hard-hearted sometimes. So he stepped my ticket. I stepped over here to the side, and I began to watch other people. And about another 15 or 20 people came up, and he told them the same thing. I saw their expression on their face. I knew they'd felt like I'd felt. They wanted to do what I'd thought about doing, but none of them did. Finally, after 15 or 20 of them came up, a very distinguished-looking gentleman, I mean white hair, had on a dark navy pinstripe suit, bright red tie. He walked up. I later found out he's a very prominent doctor, an OBGYN in Atlanta. He stepped up, and the guy began to explain the situation to him. Well, he just lost it. I mean, he lost all control. He just went bonkers. He began to almost yell at the guy, man, to get him told. Demanded to see his boss, so he brought his supervisor out. He got him told. He put Delta down the road. He said, I'll never fly Delta again. And, you know, I began to think to myself, well, I know a little bit how he feels. You know, Delta used to say they were ready when we were. You notice they don't say that anymore? 
But anyway, this guy just showed out. I mean, he even used bad language. And it got to be embarrassing. And when you watch somebody act like that, you almost you have a hard time even looking up at them when they're doing that. But I just stood there watching. Well, he stopped to get his breath, and he turned to me, and I'm standing over here, oh, I don't know, three or four or five feet away. I've got my arms folded with my briefcase down beside me, and I'm just watching him. He looked at me, and he saw I'd been watching him. And he said, uh, this is hell, isn't it? I said, no, sir. This is not hell. It's far from it. He said, what do you mean? I said, you really want me to tell you what I mean? He said, I sure do. I said, I was hoping you'd say that. I said, tell you what do, come over here for just a minute, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. So he stepped over there, and I said, this is not hell. I said, the Bible says hell is eternal separation from God. That's the worst thing that could possibly happen to a person. And I believe the Bible teaches it's a literal burning fire. It's a place of torment, of anguish, pain, and suffering, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And I've devoted my life to help keeping as many people out of that awful, terrible, dreadful place as I could. So this is not hell. I said, it's inconvenient. I don't like it any better than you do. I mean, it's totally disrupted my schedule. I don't know what I'm going to do, but but it's not hell. He said, are you a Baptist preacher? Why do they always say that? Are the Baptists the only ones that ever witnessed for the Lord? I said, well, as a matter of fact, I am. But I said, long before I became a Baptist preacher, I had to be a believer. I became a Christian. He stood straight up. I'll never forget this, Brother Fred. He stood straight up. He said, Preacher, I'm a Baptist. I said, I was afraid you were going to tell me that. <laughs> I said, well, going to church, joining the church, being a Baptist, that's fine. But that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is knowing Christ, having Christ in your heart, knowing you've been saved, knowing that if you died, you wouldn't go to that awful, terrible, dreadful place that you mentioned, but you'd go to heaven to be with him because of what he promised and what he did. I said, so let me ask you, sir, have you ever made the wonderful discovery of knowing Jesus Christ in a personal way? Or would you say you're still in the process? He said, well, I guess the way I've been behaving here, preacher, you'd say I'm still in the process, wouldn't you? I said, I didn't say that. I'm not here to condemn you or judge you. I'm just here to try to help you. I said, have you ever really opened the door to your heart and invited Christ to come in? He looked at me and I thought he was going to cry. He said, no, sir, I've never done that. I said, do you mind if I explain to you how you can do that? He said, I wish you would, preacher. I need you to help me. So I explained to him how to be saved. And when I finished sharing the gospel with him, I said, now, is there anything about that you don't understand? He said, no, sir. I said, is there anything you'd like to ask me about? He said, no, sir. I said, is there any good reason that you couldn't bow your head right here with me in the Atlanta airport and invite Christ to come into your heart? He turned around and always remember this. He said, right here in front of God and everybody else? I said, yes, sir. That's just the point. It doesn't matter where you are. He's waiting if you're only willing. He said, I'd love to do it if you'll help me. I said, I will. Give me your hand. He put his hand in mine, and I led that man to receive Christ. Well, the whole time I was so engrossed in what we were doing, I didn't realize it, but 15, 20, 22 other people had circled up around us, and they were listening. And when I opened my eyes from praying with him, I looked, and there they stood. And before I realized what I said, I said, if there are any of you that would like to pray that prayer, I'll pray it again. Just bow your head and pray it with me. And I prayed it again the second time when I opened my eyes. I said, how many of you prayed that prayer? And 13 of them raised their hand saying they prayed to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. (laughs) Praise God. 14 people got birthed into the forever family of God because I missed a flight to Charlotte, North Carolina. And listen, they went on to have the service in Gastonia without me that night. And 27 people got saved in Gastonia. And I wasn't there to preach. Can you believe that? 
God didn't mean for me to be in Gastonia in North Carolina that night. He had me right where he wanted me to be. And praise God, he gave me my own congregation built in. I didn't even have to go out and promote or try to raise a crowd. I thought about taking an offering before it was over. <laughs> but I didn't. Listen to me. What I'm trying to say to you is this. When the rivers of revival began to flow and grow and go, you and I won't have to plan anything. We won't have to organize anything. We won't have to try to make it happen. Praise God, God will just because the rivers are flowing, because the rivers of revival are moving, praise God, it just begin to happen. The Lord will begin to do it. God's ready if we're ready. Listen, I, I, I was a boy, and I was a part of some great revivals back in the Carolinas. I'll tell people about some of those great revivals and things that happened. They'll say, does God still do things like that? Yes. He hadn't passed away. He hadn't gone out of business. He hadn't closed up shop. They'll say, well, why don't things like that happen today? I say, well, all I can tell you is God's the same God. He's the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. And if we don't have a move of God today, I don't believe it's God's fault. I believe the responsibility lies with me and with you and with the people of God. And it can still happen. And it better happen. Somebody said, aren't you concerned and upset about what's going on about the election? Not at all. Psalms 2, 4 says, he that sitteth in the heavens laugh. Why should I get upset about something God's laughing about? And the last time I looked around, he sure does have a lot to laugh about right now. <laughs> oh, I have convictions, and I'm going to vote my convictions. Vote my conscience. But I want you to know I'm not trusting any man today to give us what we need. I'm looking to God. If God doesn't come through for us, folks, we're finished. We're done. But He's always there. He's always listening. He always cares. I want to see the rivers of revival flow one more time before He comes.